Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. You're about to listen to episode three of Trailblazers and our esteemed guest on this episode is Marianne Hobbs. Oh yeah, and before we get fully started here, it's really just a taste of the great music that's uh, been significant to uh, to Marianne here. If you want to check out the tracks in full, go over to Deezer.com where you can find special Trailblazers playlists as well that Eddie and I have put together and extra bits and pieces from our guests. We were really keen to, actually really keen to talk to a woman, in mm. elect, an, an electronic music legend woman. And mm. it was great to have Marianne there mm. because she's uh, the, the, the god, she's you know godparent to my only child. But, mm. but she's a real example of a, of a shining female light in a, in a space that can be quite male. Certainly is. So anyway, let's get started. Deezer Originals. Trailblazers, Marianne Hobbs. Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time, we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is a former rock journalist for Sounds and Loaded back in the day, now consummate radio broadcaster, who has presented both specialist and mainstream shows on every radio station worth its salt in the UK in uh, the annals of dance music history as the key DJ that discovered dubstep before it became a world-conquering genre, Hollywood music supervisor, club DJ and tireless champion of left-field electronic music and more impressive to me than all of these incredible things. Godmother to my one and only child, Tone. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's true. My goodness. So, uh, Marianne, ah. Marianne Hobbs, welcome to Trailblazers. And uh, allow me to light the fire and hand, hand over to Nick to fire the first question at you. Thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you. <laughs> Great. So, um, obviously, you've, you've had tons of experience across all sorts of different fronts, kind of engaging with music. Um from where you you stand at the moment, um, are you positive or are you concerned um, about the, the 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 shape of the industry and what's going on musically? Because you hear different things. You have people go, "Oh, it's all over. It's all free." The, you know, and you know, some people are very pessimistic about the shape of of music at the moment, and then others go, "No, no, no! It's an amazing time. There's some incredible music, etc." I just wonder where you stand on on that. Nick, I'm always 100% positive Mm. all day, every day. (laughs) And I think the underground is as vibrant as it's ever been right now. And it's just a question of, I suppose, reaching a little bit further. And Mm. um, there is a gigantic ocean of sound out there, you know, be it on SoundCloud or Bandcamp for people like myself to navigate. But I'm a complete obsessive. I spend all day, every day um, seeking devastatingly brilliant new artists and very much like John Peel, I think. I just want to hear something that's brand new. And um, I'm prepared to put the work in, which is why I think hopefully I have an audience that will gravitate towards me because they think, yeah, she is that lunatic that spends 10 hours a day in headphones, completely obsessively lost in this vortex of sound. But, you know, that's where I live. And and I still find that it's a a wonderful place to be. And there'll be a few spoils coming up later on on the programme, actually. Mm. Things that I've just recently discovered that I think will light up your world, hopefully. Excellent. Do you think it's a lot harder, though, to be... 
original to be creative now than it was, you know, even 5, 10, 15 years ago. For example, when we'll talk about the, the dubstep phenomena in more detail later, but do you think it's just a lot more challenging for an artist to come up with something original and creative now? Or, or no, do you think it's like that it's always possible to do so? It's really interesting, isn't it, when you examine creativity and you think, what is the essence of that in and of itself? And I think probably that's something that emanates from the subconscious mind, really. I think what you find these days are people uh, is that people have access to, to, to fantastic tools that are very, very cheap and easy to access. Yeah. Um, and I think probably recording music is accessible to almost everybody, certainly in the type of environment that we live in in the West, you know, yeah. which is a really wonderful, liberating thing. Mm. Also, you have free platforms everywhere that you can, you can post your music on so that people like myself can find it. So mm. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a, I think it's a real challenge if you want to work in a mainstream area, but that's never really concerned mm. me in the slightest, to be honest. But like I say, the creativity, wow, it's, just, it's like the Holy Grail, isn't it, really? And all of that comes from within a, a mm. single individual person. Mm. See, I think it is harder. What do you think, Eddie? I think it's, it's harder to... I, I find that I personally experience less wow moments than perhaps I did, you know, a certain amount of... That's because you're not regularly listening to Marianne on my show, obviously. That could be my downfall. Because, you know, when, when anyone... I, am, I am in the studio with both of you, it, so really... It's, it's a very interesting question, and um, I, I do get... A lot of people sort of... Well, I'm, how about I'm aware you? of... How about you? Do you have the same amount of wow moments as ever? Well, I guess... When you get older, just the fact that you've spent more time on the planet means that you will naturally have less wow moments because mm. you have more to relate everything mm. to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, mm. I'm I'm really aware of people, perhaps you know our age, that um, moan on Facebook about music being so shit now. And I every yes. time I think you're just not listening. You're you could be listening to Marianne. You could be yep. listening to me. You could be listening to Rob the Bank. You know, there's there are people out there mm. who are who are saying, as Marianne just did, and 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 I would echo that that music's never been in a better place mm. because you've got everything that's old. It's it's all there, and you've mm. got some you've got stuff that was made last week that you know that that gets sent to Marianne or to me, and that mm. we love, and then we mm. would support. Mm. You know, maybe it's it's the the there are less wow moments to, to do with like a, a new a sound or something like that but like yes but like marianne says like the, the the tools that people have now and the technology yes gets is so I, I guess you know electronic music is dependent on what it's made with mm. and and the 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 ground is kind of shifting so much all the time and, mm. and technology is just getting bigger and better or smaller and better and, and, and yes. you know, Faster. all the time. Yeah, yeah and faster and, and easier. easier to use. So yes. so I think, you know, people are using these tools to make incredible music. And actually, and the one thing I've noticed is that is that the wow, the, the people who sort of define these wow moments are just getting younger and younger. And I'm, I've got yeah, every... That I, is certainly... I'm just waiting for a fetus to produce a record that I'm going to, you know, make record of the week, you know. It, it, you're, right, you're right about that. That is something that I notice as well. And, you know, obviously the, the comfort with technology that I can, you know, be on an iPhone and it's got GarageBand or whatever and you're sampling vocals and just 
doing all of that stuff in a kind of you do it in an offhand manner just messing about but that was something that took so much planning and organization and and mm. so it just lands in the hands of of people and yes the the comfort with technology are you finding that that it's younger and younger artists absolutely yeah wowing yeah. you mm. and uh I don't know, just to kind of spool back to my own experience as a child as well. I remember music was such an exotic commodity. Um, mm. I used to have to go to the local toy shop, Mia's toy shop on the high street in Garstang where I lived, and I would bring in my savings um, and I would lay them down on the counter and I would order the records that I wanted and they would take nine weeks to arrive at the toy shop and you'd go in after six weeks and go, is my record here yet? And they'd say, no, not yet. It's yeah. only six weeks, Marianne. Oh, <laughs> um, God. But, you know, it, it, it certainly... It I, I didn't actually know you could order records from a toy shop. Yeah, well, you learn something well, new in, every yeah, day. I guess in Garstang and <laughs> Lancashire, was, it was a, a hybrid toy slash, you know, it, it was a, a, an, enjoy, a, an enjoyment for youths shop. Yeah, okay, which yeah, yeah, yeah. music was very much a part of. Well, now I'm glad that you've taken us back there, Marianne, because mm. um, in, in your very first sentence, you used the phrase uh, reaching a little bit further, which is something that you've obviously, you know, done in your career so admirably. And so let's, let's do that right now. Let's spool right back, as you said to to Garstang in Lancashire to where you to, to where you came from so what were what was the the the, the record that, or or who were the artists that first kind of pricked your ears up and who, or you you mentioned sort of exotic mm. uh, i mean you know was it i i mean i'm guessing that it must have been punk that 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 did it for you absolutely because we, yeah, it, was the, vintage. it was the sex pistols and i remember we had this really um god terrifying music teacher at school um, absolutely terrifying and he spent an entire double lesson which was the best part of a couple of hours back in those days screaming at us about the evils of punk and how it would destroy the very fabric of society and I remember thinking to myself wow. do you know what, if you represent the fabric of society then I have to figure out what this punk rock stuff is <laughs> So hang on a second, um, so you, were, you, had a, you had a music class at school so like music was taught the same as English and French and maths and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it was. That's same, amazing. Same here. Really? I yeah. didn't have that. We didn't have... I mean, didn't you have could... Music, well, you could... Part like, of the... You, no, not a part of the curriculum. You could do an, an extracurricular music... You know, you can... Hmm. Like, you know, your, your parents would thrust a clarinet at you when you were nine or whatever and go play this. Yeah. But, but we didn't have music as, as part of the curriculum. That's really... I'm really jealous of both of you, actually. I wouldn't Damn. be, to be honest. We didn't really State learn school. much in those, in those lessons. Yeah, and it yeah. was similar. You know, there was this sort of catastrophically poor brass band. I mean, so bad. We <laughs> couldn't even manage one verse of the floral dance. You know, it was awful. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess my experience really, I don't know, it was a strange one as a kid because my dad had banned all music from the house. And um, really? I still used to buy punk records, punk singles, and I used to stash them in a little sock drawer, but he always found them and smashed them up. Why? But I don't know. He just... I've never really understood the reason and, why. And all music. All music, So yeah. he didn't want... He was just like, I don't want anybody listening to the radio? All music was banned, yeah. Gosh. He had some old 78s with steam engine noises on that we used right. to play um, very occasionally, but... Yeah, he wouldn't have music in the house. and um, Gosh, that's, well, that's interesting. The only thing he never found was this tiny little transistor radio that I had, which was about as big as a can of tuna fish, and it had a little yes. scroll in the centre. And I used to sit 
in the dead of night with my covers over the top of my head in yeah. bed, scrolling across the dial looking for John Peel's show. Mm. And it was Peel really who stood at the kind of the, the, the gateway to an alternate universe for me. And I thought, I want to live in that world. That's mm. where I'm heading, you know, mm. towards that world. How old were you when you were having those thoughts? Probably 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's quite early to know where you're heading. 12, absolutely. But, but Garston was a pretty desolate place. <laughs> you knew you were heading out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And really, it was it was only Peel who showed me evidence this that this other world existed at all, mm. you know. Mm. I but, know what you mean. But his show was remarkable too in the way that um, Punk came along and completely changed the entire fabric of the programme, quite literally overnight, you know. Ahead of that, he would be playing these... Um, wonderful but highly indulgent probably 25 minute prog rock workouts mm. you know? <laughs> and then John Walters suddenly went to a Pistols gig and everything changed but for somebody like me that 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 sound that energy that message of punk connected directly with me as a as a kid you know mm. so um it was, I guess it was when he dropped this that it was the it was the the key moment trailblazers Marianne Hobbs I don't want a holiday in a sun Great to hear it again. Uh, Holidays in the Sun by the Sex Pistols. Um, so first tune chosen by Marianne Hobbs, who is our, our trailblazer. So you are under your duvet with a little tiny transistor radio, the, sign of a, the, the size of a, of a can of tuna, in a, in a household in which music is banned, which was very interesting and, mm. and, and, and gutting. Um, and, and you're listening to John Peel play the Sex Pistols and, you, you, and you're there as the... the whole landscape of music is changing in the UK. So how did you feel back then? Did that, how did that make you feel? Did, that, did, did it liberate you in some way or did it make you feel as though you wanted to then get involved? Did you at that point feel that music was your future? Yeah, I really did. And yeah, I was slightly too young for punk. It all happened when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. So I was kind of too, too young to get to the gigs, which was devastating to me I just would read about them in the music press but I couldn't be there but f from I suppose the earliest moment that I could get away with bonking school jumping a train and heading to London to go and see gigs I used to do it and um, I remember very very distinctly one day seeing an advert in Sounds Music Paper uh, for a gig that Motorhead were putting on, who are another of my favourite bands. I used mm. to knock about with a whole crew of bikers and obviously, you know, punk and, and hard rock were, were massive in our world mm. at that time. And I remember seeing this advert, Motorhead, a Hackney dog track, and I thought, I'm going to that. <laughs> and um, so I jumped the train. <laughs> I still don't know how I actually got to Hackney because it's quite away from Euston Station. If you ask me now, how did you actually make it to Hackney? I couldn't tell you at age 15. Probably like walked or something. That I think I probably, probably would. You know, you probably ask somebody in at King's Cross Station, how do I get to Acne? And they go, it's in that direction. It's that way, yeah. You sort of... Yeah, yeah I bet you walked and just asked, but you know, you, no iPhones, you just thing, ask people yeah, directions. It's the sort of thing you do, isn't it, at 15? Yeah. But I remember getting to this field and um, 
the Hells Angels were in charge of the gig. So I turn up on this scorching hot day um, and all that's there is a field full of angels. There's no sanitation, there are no toilets, there are no drinks, there's no nothing. There's just mm. motorhead on stage in this blistering hot field. And um, I think it was simultaneously probably the most terrifying and liberating experience of my entire life because <laughs> I remember by the end of the day suddenly kind of understanding what what community was and I thought oh my god I'm in the middle of a field and suddenly for the very first time in my life I found all of these people who think the same way as me they've Mm. made the same pilgrimage they've come to this field and we're all together in the same place and I, I had this childlike sort of feeling at the end of the day just thinking like oh shit why do we all need to go home why can't we all just stay here forever and build a city you know <laughs> and live on this site for the rest of time and, and that's um, why festivals work isn't exactly. it because how many hundreds of thousands of people around the globe think that every time that it gets to sort of sunday evening sunday night they're like oh we just yeah why can't this be forever right but this was, again, early evidence to me that this community of people existed somewhere out there beyond yes. Garstang, which was a tiny village of a thousand people in the north. So you went on your own? Yeah, always. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, I, I guess Motorhead and those Hells Angels changed my life. And they were really kind to me, actually. They could see that I was just a little kid on my own, you know, winging it. And um, <laughs> I'll never forget it. I remember the smell of that field. I remember the burning of the sun. I remember Lemmy so clearly... I used to scrabble all the way right down the front um, to the gigs that I I used to go to. Same thing with Phil Lynn. And I used to sort of emerge right in the centre of the stage and just gaze, gaze up at whoever was singing. And I remember in those days as well, what was really interesting was that you had, you'd never heard the spoken voice of... Mm. um, of many singers at all, unless mm. Peel would interview them, which was rare because he hated doing interviews on the radio. And so I used to stand underneath yeah. them and, and wait to hear them speak and think, I wonder what they will actually say to me. I wonder if they can see me standing here. I wonder what they're going to tell me. And, and of course, because music wasn't, you know, okay in your household, of course you weren't watching, I'm guessing, you weren't watching The Tube or Old Grey Whistle Test or... I assume your dad didn't really want that kind of stuff There was nothing permeating. Like that at all. No, yeah. so hence maybe some other people had a bit more access, would have maybe seen a few more interviews or whatever, but in your experience, yeah, there was nothing it was, at all. Yeah. That door was shut, wasn't it? And I guess that maybe that's partly one of the reasons that I wanted to become a journalist as well, that um, I was so fascinated about these these people's stories. I was I was so fascinated about mm. about their lives and how they had come to be creating this music that moved me so much. So I think that was what a, a great deal of actually what drew me to, to to the jobs that I've done subsequently. You know, as a writer and a broadcaster, yeah. The idea that it's about storytelling, it's about understanding the human condition and what it is that feeds this incredible music. You know, that all of us. I don't know. We couldn't live without. I guess that's that's pretty amazing. So as a fi- as a fifteen year old, you're like quite literally you're standing there going, "I really want to hear what this person has got to say." And then, as a career, your career becomes finding out what this per- what these people have got to say. <laughs> Absolutely, that's pretty, pretty much, cool. Yeah, it's funny as well listening to Bowie. I remember the first Bowie album that I ever bought. Um, it was Low, and I remember sitting on the floor, cross legged. Um, in my bedroom playing it over and over and over again and my favourite tune was actually 
Subterraneans, which is the last tune on the album, the most eccentric and esoteric, otherworldly mm. of the entire record. Mm. And I remember th thinking to myself, if I can decode these lyrics, if I can figure out what David Bowie's trying to say to me, then I'm going to get the keys to the gate. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't understand what that get, that those keys would unlock and what would be beyond that gate. I just knew that I wanted to be there, you know. So shall we shall we hear some Motorhead? This gives me such, such huge pleasure to right? do it because we? like you, you talked about community and you know, there's no internet and all, and we were just focused on on the same papers and stuff and and so and you were 15 doing this. I was 14 at that time and um I in in my youth I only ever joined two fan clubs. And in those days, that was your, you know, yeah. that was a sort of community badge, literally, you know. And, and the first one was Friends of Old Marvel, Foom, which was like the the, the Marvel fan club because mm. you know I loved comics mm. and Motorhead Bangers. And I remember, and my my ID number was four figures starting with one, so I was in the first, I don't know, like thirteen hundred people or something to join right. Motorhead Bangers. So mm. while I'm jealous of the fact that Marianne could, was allowed to come down to London from Garstang, I wasn't allowed to move from Hereford. I wasn't I just, allowed. I just, I, I just took. Oh, off. you just did. Oh, right. Well, I didn't <laughs> just, have the balls to do it. Just while we're having. <laughs> Motorhead loving. Yeah, I, I went to see Motorhead when I was a teenager as well. Bristol Colston Hall, probably about 81 or something like that, 82, I guess. So, yeah, we've all, that must have been we've your, all had that Motorhead moment. Probably your first experience of tinnitus right there. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Trailblazers, Marianne Hobbs. Wow, it's just so amazing to hear that again. And um, it's just occurred to me that, uh, I mean, very obviously that you've, you, you've, you've chosen uh, Motorhead and, then, and, and you've chosen David Bowie and we're going to play these things. And I think it was literally the first bit of news that hit us um, in our, on our New Year hangovers was that Lemmy had, uh, had passed. And then, of course, the, uh, the man we all thought was immortal. Um, Bowie went uh, just, you know, just a few months later. And I, so I think we thought they were both immortal, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Le I did. I, You know, I think Lemmy had, you know, personified that that role. And you just thought, you thought if he's got to the age of 70, you know, living that lifestyle, and I think he was around 70, but could be wrong. But if he's got, if he's got that far, well, presumably, yes. I just thought he'll just keep going and going and going. It was... Hard to comprehend. Yeah, but. so it must, it must have been a, a very tough start to the year for you, Marianne. Yeah, we did um, a whole weekend of tribute shows, shows to Bowie. And yeah, they were the biggest shows of my life. Um, beyond the show that I did for John Peel when he died, I hosted one of his programmes in the week that he died. But it's so bizarre, isn't it? I feel when we're not really quite over Bowie yet um, it still feels very very close to me yeah 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 and um, I think all of us were so taken aback because what we were witnessing was for the very first time an artist who had turned their own death into an art form and I, I think 
we've never seen anything orchestrated in quite that way before. No. We've seen a lot of artists who deal with death as a topic, as a subject, and they explore it very deeply. But we haven't seen somebody deal with their own death in such a profound way. Um, I, I think that we're still sort of feeling very... Uh, confused about the whole thing. We're still trying to decode a lot of the messaging that he left behind. Um, but I think it was immaculate the way that he departed. And I think, you know, maybe it's an example to all of us. You know, you just disappear without a trace and you leave the best of your work for people to enjoy and for people to love. And I still think we don't even really know what happened to him. There was that strange story in the papers that... He had been cremated almost immediately after his death. I remember that the mirror ran it and then the Guardian and the Independent followed. But we don't even really know what became of him. We were told that there would be no ceremony and that the family didn't want any official tributes and neither did he. And then he just seemed to disappear. Mm. And there was there was almost there was that the, the 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 scene in the Lazarus video, which is the last video that he put in the public domain where he disappears through the back of the wardrobe and it's the last thing that you see. And that was literally it, wasn't it? He was gone. And do you think that it's appropriate, given, you know, what we know about David Bowie, that he, that that there's no memorial in a sense, apart from the the, the incredible um, rows and rows of flowers outside my local tube station, you know, that I see, you know, several times a week and, and... um, moved to tears with but you know I wonder whether what, did he have his ashes scattered somewhere or, 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 or like is there is it actually better that he didn't do that and that there wasn't there there isn't a gravestone for, for people to write all over like Jim Morrison or a, that, 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 that he's he still has that incredible air of mystery and uh, a like you say a sort of a, a, he reaches out for you to, to decode yeah, him. he disappeared without a trace, and that's a wonderful thing. But it's also something that we're not used to culturally, is it? We 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 cling to some idea that there will be some sort of edifice left for us to reference, and yet really he didn't want that. He wants the work to be the reference point that we you know that we all draw on everything that we connected with in the past. And I mean, he was such a a master of bringing really, really radical creative ideas into the mainstream, wasn't he? And I think this was his last stroke of genius, to be honest. And uh, But yeah, I don't know. I'm... So what Bowie song would you choose then? Because there, there, there are so many that you could choose, <laughs> like because you love him right from, from Ziggy Stardust right through to, to Black Star. So where are you going to plant your flag? I'm going to go with Subterraneans because... I loved it, as I said earlier, when I was a 13-year-old girl. And I think what's really interesting with hindsight is that I recognise that even at that point, it was Bowie who had instilled these ideas of space in me um, and just a great deal of the music that I loved came from my passion for subterraneans as, as a child. And, and that would be neoclassical music, that would be dubstep, that would be electronic music that relies on a lot of space for texture. And this was the first example, I guess, that that, um, um, that really resonated with me at 13 years old. Props to Brian Eno. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Trailblazers, Marianne Hobbs. Caroline, Caroline, bribing the 
Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. Wow. Um, wow, in the context of now you're being here, Marianne Hobbs, and you're listening to that music, it's very moving. It's, it's, so, it's so you, isn't it? And in, in, in you can see how that sort of laid a, a blueprint for you. And uh, actually, Nick made this point while we were listening to, to this record and talking about death and how we ne- we don't talk about it and, you know, and all that. And, and it occurred, occurred to us that actually all of us, but especially Marianne and myself, are in this very blessed position of, be- of being in this position where we get to meet and often interact with our heroes. Mm. And they say never meet your heroes. But then that's the that's I think that's very that very sort of British, um, you know, kind of negative thing going on there. Yeah. Because in my experience, and I'm and, and of course, I'm going to ask Marianne if, if she would echo this. I've had nothing but good um, come of meeting my heroes, and, mm. you know, of, of, mm. uh, and been so, so blessed to, to to meet and to even become friends with people like Gary Newman. It's just phenomenal. I even had this bizarre moment yesterday, which actually I told Marianne last night, where I introduced two of my heroes, which was just. And if I'd if I'd gone back in a time machine and told you know, my, my nine, 20 year old self that I was going to introduce Gary Newman to Paul Hartnell 26 years later. Or whatever, <laughs> I would have just gone, fuck off. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, but, um, but more to the point, Marianne, you actually met Bowie a, a couple of times. What was the context and what, what happened and what did you get from that? And, and I did. Yeah. Um, when he was 50 years old, um, I flew to New York to uh, make a very special program for Radio One, actually to celebrate his 50th birthday. And, um, I remember being a bit of a wildcat in those days and uh, I was sparring with him a little bit, which he loved and uh, taking the mickey out of him for being so old and um, (laughs) (laughs) as you do. And um, I remember him sitting very sagely and saying, Marianne, he said, I can't possibly explain to anybody of your age just how wonderful it is to be 50. He said, you'll find out when you arrive. And of course, he was absolutely right because I'm 51 now and I feel like it's the best place that I've ever been in my life. But yeah, it was interesting. I took a huge number of different messages from other artists who were fans of his work. So people like Robert Smith asked him, how did you actually get the name Bowie? And and he told the story that it's obviously it's about a Bowie knife um, and a knife with a blade on either side, which he loved. But I took a particular message that really, really resonated with him, which was from Scott Walker. And I remember us contacting Scott Walker and saying, um, is it possible that you could do a, a message for Bowie for his 50th birthday? And he said, yeah, no problem. And we got this wobbly old cassette recording that arrived in the post from Scott Walker and we took it along to play to David. And um, it was a message that literally stopped him in his tracks. And unbeknown to me, he'd been a huge fan of Scott Walker ever since he was making rock and roll records as a kid. Never met him. And Scott delivered this absolutely beautiful poetic message about how he'd liberated so many artists with the work that he'd done. And I remember this exquisite silence, a beautiful silence that rolled out for at least a minute at the end of the message playing to him. And all you can hear on the tape is just Bowie shifting in his chair and you can hear his voice breaking as he speaks and there were tears in his eyes and he said to me, I think I see God in the window. 
And um, it's a beautiful moment. It's up online at YouTube. It's been, I don't know, listened to like a million times probably at, at this point. Mm, but um, yeah. I think that's the reason that he wanted me back, actually, <laughs> the Scott Walker message, because about, about a year later, he was in the middle of a documentary series that he absolutely did not want to finish. And to cut a long story short, requested that I fly to New York to do the interviews. And he said, the only wow. way I'm going to finish this series is if you get Marianne Hobbs to, to, to interview me. What an honour. Um, so, wow. yeah, it was the only time I went first class on a plane to New York and back in a day. I got a massage and a sirloin steak. And, um, <laughs> and a Bowie hang. Yeah, and uh, a four day. and a half hours with David, which was, yeah, spectacular. But he when, was, when did you start eating meat? <laughs> <laughs> He was so gracious. I remember an email that he sent to me in the aftermath where he 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 just wrote to me, "Dearest Marianne, thank you so much for coming to New York to execute the interview. You made a tortuous experience incredibly um incredibly good and uh, I've still I've still got it somewhere and I don't know like many people I think their experience of Bowie was a wonderful one. He's great fun. He loves to have a really good crack with you. Um and he's incredibly self-deprecating. He, he 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 understands that he's he's fundamentally flawed as a human being, just as the rest of us are. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. He's everything and so much more than you would wish him to be. Um, so well read, so eloquent and interesting, um, but really warm, really friendly. And um, as Eddie said, I I was I was slightly intimidated at the notion of meeting him, having been such a huge fan as a yeah. kid. But yeah, I, I remember him with. Just great fondness. And do you ha- have you had any other sort of memorable experiences of, of meeting your heroes? Is there any, anybody else that springs to mind when you think, in, either in a positive or... I mean, Eddie said it's been overwhelmingly positive for him. Has there ever been a, a point where you've gone, ah, that's a little bit disappointing? Not really, actually. Good. Good, I'm pleased to hear I that. remember meeting the Pistols when they first reformed and again that was for a documentary for Radio 1 and um, it was just ahead of that first Reformation gig that they did in Finsbury Park many years the ago. Filthy Luca talk. Yeah. That was the one, yeah. <laughs> and um, again it was a very glamorous trip actually. I was flown out to Los Angeles and I interviewed all the four original members at the Chateau Marmont. Mm. Any steak? <laughs> <laughs> Not that day, maybe. No, I don't think there was actually. Okay, that time. fine. Um, but um, I just remember the part. I, I really took John Lydon to town completely. I mean, I'd just come off the back of sort of working in the NME, and it was. I was very confrontational as a journalist at that point, which you had to be in those days. And and this was right at at the earliest moment, really, that I got to Radio One. So I wasn't afraid of a confrontational interview mm. at all. Mm. And. Um, I remember the trail. Eddie probably made it, actually, at Radio mm. 1 that we used for the programme, which <laughs> yeah, was just loud and screaming, <laughs> don't you quote my book back at me, little girl. <laughs> I remember, yeah. Do you remember? You probably made <laughs> yeah, I it. I did make that yeah. trailer, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that was, that was mind-blowing, you know, to sit with the four original members of the Pistols and have an hour with each one of them at the Chateau Marmont in Brilliant. Hollywood. I mean, life doesn't really get much sweeter than that, does I'm, it? I'm interested to know who actually said this. This don't meet your heroes comment that we all know that somebody said it right and it kind of floats around in the background but I've got no idea who 
actually put that out there. I might have to do a quick Google. Somebody met Chevy Chase, maybe, from what, from what, from <laughs> yeah. what I've read. Yeah, it could be, could be. <laughs> no, I'm, a hero. <laughs> no, so, well, no, amazing, though, to, to be able to, yeah, to draw those dots between listening to the Sex Pistols as a 12-year-old and whatever, and then those years down the line, you're in LA, you're interviewing, you know, and... It's brilliant, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, I love it. Blowing. I love it. Lemmy too. I met many times uh, when I was doing the Radio One Rock show, but he used to get he used to go crazy with me because I just used to bug him about Hendrix all the time. Because <laughs> in his early days, he was a roadie for Jimi Hendrix, yeah. and uh, I just wanted him to tell me Hendrix stories, and he would be like, <laughs> "I'm here to talk about Motorhead, Marianne." And he'd, I'll always remember though he told me that. Um, Hendrix was a, a, a proper old-fashioned gentleman. So if uh-huh. a lady would walk into the room, he would stand and offer you his chair, right. you know, and, and ask if you would like him to take your coat. And he said in a way that you can't even conceive of, you know, huh. he was so chivalrous. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, but he's, yeah, <laughs> he was so sick to the back teeth of me going, can we talk about Jimmy? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, um, I, I guess probably for the, for the purposes of time, um, we'd have to sort of do a, like a bit of a fast forward through yeah. your, um, through your journalistic career, really, because, uh, which was, you know, incredibly, there are some, some incredible moments in there, sounds, you know, amazing rock, inky rock press. And then you went, and you were loaded, right? In the, you were, you were the girl. Well, in, in you were the much needed dose of estrogen in a world of massive, massively uh, sort of overloaded with testosterone. At loaded, you know, and and you, that must have been a that must have been an interesting time, you know, right there to be, you know, working with James and and Tim Southwell and and I guess and maybe Grant Fleming and people like that. Absolutely, back, and, yeah. and, and, and you know Ben um, in those days. Can can I dive in though? Can I ask how you got the gig, your first journalistic gig? So how you moved from being a fan into the industry? Yeah, that's and then a long maybe story. We'll, uh, but I'll give you, uh, the short form is pretty entertaining. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was 18, I ran away from Garstang, which is the village that I grew up in. And uh, I lived on a bus in a car park on the outskirts of London for a year with a rock band called Heretic. Right. And... Um, <laughs> My sole purpose was really to try to to get a job as a writer. That's what I wanted to do. I used to write, read Sounds music paper, and I just my dream was to write for them. And mm. I thought, what will the editor of Sounds need to see? And I thought, well, surely you must have to demonstrate that you've actually worked for a band. So I ended up on a bus in a car park, working and living f- with this band <laughs> called Heretic. And um, in the time that I wasn't. Um, dedicating my life and my financial resources to them, which were very limited, I hasten to add. Um, I got a few extra jobs in in bars. I had three other jobs in bars and I I produced a little fanzine uh, called Crush. And I did a couple of issues of of this fanzine and and, and I sent it off to the editor of Sounds along with this enormous CV detailing all of my responsibilities to the band. Um, So I said, you know, I'm their lighting designer when we go on tour and I, I, I make their costumes and I do their artwork and... Um, I'm the bus mechanic, very proudly, which I was, or <laughs> one of them. And um, I, there was, there you, was a, you literally kept the wheels on the bus, pretty much with yeah, that band. Yeah, <laughs> and um, there was a friend of ours actually. Um, we had no fixed abode at that time, but there was a friend of ours who was a computer scientist who was a massive fan of the band Heretic, 
Um, he used to allow us to use his address and very occasionally his toilet and shower, which was just such a blessing. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I remember one day he came to the car park where we lived and he knocked on the <laughs> door of the bus and I thought, God, what's Fez doing here? That's, that's kind of really weird. It's usually us, like, yeah, begging food or yeah, sanitation yeah. from him, yeah. And he handed me a letter with Sound's logo on, on, on the top right-hand corner and it was from the editor of Sound's and I... It just I couldn't believe it and I, I opened the letter and read it and it basically said come and see me you know I've read your fanzine I need to know what you're doing and I remember walking into the office and he said he said what the hell are you, you actually live on a bus what are you doing living on a bus <laughs> he said why didn't why didn't you just send in a review to me or something like that if you wanted to write for the paper you know I can't believe you're living this way but I it kind of hadn't occurred to me as a, as, a, as a kid that there would be another route in at all. I just thought this, I'm living the dream now, you know, I'm, I'm, this is the first foot on the causeway for me, you know. And, but I, re- okay. I remember when I, I got sent to New York to go and interview um, the first artist called Molly Hatchett, weirdly, um, that, that, that he wanted me to write about for the paper. And uh, I still had no fixed abode at that point, you know, I, I, and I thought this is utterly bizarre. I'm on a plane to America and I, I don't have a permanent dress, you know. Um, and I remember getting into the back of a sort of blacked out limo with Xavier Russell from Kerrang and driving over the Brooklyn Bridge and there were a couple of bottles of Jack Daniels in this limousine thinking life has never been stranger at 19 <laughs> years old. But like, I think I'm in the right place, you know. Mm. So that's, that's the story of, yeah, how I, in, in short form, it, it goes on for quite some time but. did did I did I tell you before Eddie the first time I did a work trip to New York like my what my dad's response was have we touched on no that? go on so yeah it would have been early probably early days of XL maybe new music seminar kind of visit something around that zone and yeah of course flights you know and um uh, you know, and accommodation and all of that, all sort of on the company. I phoned my dad up from the the Marriott in Times Square where I was staying. Go, yeah, you know, I'm here, and it's a business trip in New York and everything. And he was like, "Are they deducting the cost of your hotels and your flights from your wages?" Type thing. You know, he, he was sort of trying to process: can it really be the case that? that you're not physically paying exactly out of your own pocket everything for the... And it's like, no, 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 it's like a company cost and da-da-da. He's like, oh, well, fair play to you then, you know. Because funnily enough, he would have preferred me to do something a little bit more like what you did, more of a journalist, maybe like a BBC reporter or something like this. But then I... You know, went down the line of of records. Yeah, they can get their head around writing, can't yeah, they? Yeah, he could. <laughs> no, yeah, no, something like <laughs> that. A, generation. Yes, yeah, they could. The BBC, you know, maybe a journalist news report, something like that. He would have gone. That sounds. I get it. You know, but sort of record label stuff, he didn't quite get. So mm. it was a similar thing, I suppose. Where you know, you go. Yeah, you go, wow, don't you? It's brilliant. Mm. First time that you you find yourself on one of those international, in in one of those international environments. It's absolutely it's great. Yeah. So, well, so I guess the next question must be um, echoing what Nick said. You know, we now know how what your entry point into uh, and that's hilarious. Your entry point <laughs> into into music journalists, some journalism, which is something that you really excelled at. But of course, I guess. Had you always wanted? You said you always wanted to be a writer, but then when you were huddled under that duvet in Garstang, listening to John Peel, you 
you know, did you want to be a writer or did you want to be a broadcaster? Was the was the acorn of wanting to be a broadcaster planted then? And, and is that was that your long term game plan? And, and and also, so how did you then get into that? I'll tell you what's really interesting. I, I suppose it never occurred to me in a billion light years as a kid that, that there would be an option to be a broadcaster. Um, it just, it felt too far away. It felt like something that, I don't know, I wouldn't even conceive of it. But for some reason, I thought I could probably write for sounds. Um, but I came out of school and, I mean, I worked in an egg packing factory. I used to earn the princely sum of £39 a week in a little brown paper envelope and I had no education whatsoever. So... When I began writing for sounds, um, my spelling was so terrible. I literally couldn't spell a word that was longer than three letters. And the editor said, look, I love the copy, but the subs can't deal with this. You're going to have to learn how to spell or I'm going to sack you. So I remember actually standing um, in a phone box with a pocket full of two pence pieces, going through every single word that was longer than three letters with my mum on the phone who was a teacher so that she, she would she would correct the spelling of every word for me you know and uh it was it was it was kind of gangster at the beginning you know I thought oh my god am I ever going to be able to do this and actually I found it the pips <laughs> can't get me, can't get me 2p in yeah. <laughs> fuck I'm going to lose my gig yeah I guess with anything in life, you know, it almost kills you to do something really, really wonderful, doesn't it? It almost does. And I felt like becoming a great writer was killing. I found it really, really difficult. I think I did become better at, at, it, at it as a craft, but it was re I always found it really, really hard. I didn't have any kind of natural gift in a way that a lot of the other people around me, people like David Quantic, James mm. Brown, Stephen Wells, they were, they were devastatingly good writers. And I, I, I felt that I would probably have to, you know, I'd come back from some sort of a trip or something like that. And I, I would, it would be 72 hours of hell mm. to get this piece in shape for a cover. And I could, I could, I could get there, but it was tortuous and it never really became any easier for me. But mm. when I started to just do odds and sods, uh, contributing to other people's programmes in the first instance, you know, just as a guest, I just found radio so joyful. And I found that I had a much more kind of natural aptitude for radio. And there was another really key element that came in for me was that as a journalist, you were very much expected to be a critic, which I never really was. I was always, I'm always, a, I still am a fan. And I, I yeah. my, as I've said right at the beginning of the programme, I'm a 100% positive person always. I don't like to critique things that I dislike. Mm. I would rather allow the people who love that to take it away and enjoy it. What I love to do is hopefully bring to the world something that I think is really valuable and tell those stories. And obviously, you know, in, in certainly in my day when I was writing, that wasn't that wasn't a prerequisite really. People want wanted those very biting, critical, challenging, acerbic pieces of yeah. writing, and it was very much part of the culture. Yeah. So I also figured that once I got to radio, I could be the fan that was in my heart again. I could play the music that I loved and tell the stories of the artists that I really cared about, and that was that. So I found really much more of a natural affinity um, because. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm that person ultimately, you know. I think that's, I think that's possibly what we all are here. We're all fans, aren't we? And we all want to find things to be positive about. And I, I don't think any of us here want to spend our lives just slagging stuff. That's terrible, and I'm, the reason it's awful is this. And, yeah. and some people love that, don't they? They love bitching and whinging and whatever. But I don't think any of us. 
Yeah, that's not our thing, is it? Absolutely true and interesting. And, and, uh, you know, Marianne said, um, actually, this is something we've talked about on this, on this program that about, you know, never lose being a fan, you know, no matter how famous and big you get, you know, you get these people, sometimes you meet people, you know, that are really huge and, and, but they're still such massive fans. They never, ever lose that childlike enthusiasm that, you know, that you had when you walked into that toy shop and spilt your savings, your piggy, the contents of your piggy bank onto that table. Um, but it's interesting that you, you, you said just now, Marianne, that you know, people wanted that challenging, acerbic, uh, yeah. very confrontational style. I wasn't one of those, you know, and that's why I didn't like the NME. Like, I, I was much more Melody Maker because I, I felt they, that they were much more uh, positive and, and you know, sort of reflected what, what I think. And I, mm. I, I always hated and will always hate that whole style of journalism of giving a record to someone who you know hates it and getting their review their critique and i I, i've always thought what is the chuffing point of that you're trying to do a record you're trying to do a review for people who are going to buy the album not for people who are going to ignore it and it just seems like a completely futile exercise which is just it's actually masturbatory i I, know not even that i think that's an actual a compliment it's sort of it's just which is a first oh, it's just really it's so so utterly pointless and sort of mm. self-reflective rather than kind of you know open and sorry really you've you've got a bee in my but there's a it's a real bee in my bonnet this thing so maybe we did, can... did you just briefly though before we do move on did you have conversations with the, your journalistic peers about this issue and and was it just culturally look it sells it sells papers was it just as simple as that from an editorial level? Look, if we've got polarising opinion, somebody saying, this is shit, I mm. hate it, that's good for us because it sells papers. Yeah, I mean, I had this endless debate with our, you know, the sort of se- the peers of mine in editorial positions, more senior editorial positions. And I remember there was a really classic case where I, I was begging Danny Kelly, who was my editor at NME at the time, to allow me to put Nirvana on the cover, and he wouldn't hear of it, particularly because I was so passionate about them. Hmm. But I, <laughs> I remember um, there was a particular week when they had two different cover stories fall through. One was Sonic Youth and the other one was The Cure. And he rang me and he said, OK, if you really, really believe in this band, you've got 48 hours to find them and to turn around 3,000 words for the cover for me. And you can have this cover if you want. But if you read that piece, which is one of the pieces that I'm most proud of, and it's still platformed online everywhere, it was the first ever Nirvana cover that Enemy ran. Um, it, it's in spite of the fact that I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about this band, which is reflected in the writing. There's still, it has, it has razor sharp edges, that piece of writing, you know, even from me at that point, because I knew that it wouldn't be accepted in any other form, you know, mm. and it was you necessary. to have bits of it that pushed the artist into a difficult position. Absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah. And, um, I don't know. He would have rejected it outright um, if it didn't if if it didn't comply with with that journalistic mm. standard at the time. It was mm. necessary to do it, and which is like I say, why I always find radio is is it's a much better home for me. You know, we're much more of a natural fit with one another. Hopefully, I think. Mm. So was it was it Sammy Jacobs who made the first reach? From radio <laughs> to journalism to you to get you to persuade you to go to the the then pirate uh, station XFM. I was doing all kinds of bits and pieces, guesting on other people's programs. So, uh, do you remember Radcliffe and McConey? Yeah. No, sorry, um, um, uh, uh, not Radcliffe and Mark McConey. Mark and Lard. 
Uh, it was Stuart McConey and Andrew Collins. Oh, um, Collins and McConey. Collins, Collins and McConey, yeah. They had a review show, which was a little bit like round table. Like, so it's, it's much rowdier than that, which was great fun. That I used to go on quite a bit. So that was once a week on Radio 1 in the, in the mid-90s, wasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And uh, <laughs> I used to do quite a bit on GLR, which was the local London radio station, the BBC station. Oh, back um, when Chris Evans was on it. That's right, yeah. And I used to... Um, I wound up doing quite a lot of depths on a Sunday morning and I, my show used to buffer against Mark Lamar's and Mark always used to have fantastic guests on like he'd had have Eddie Izzard in or Ronnie Wood but they'd always be really late because it was a Sunday morning and he hated broadcasting alone so he would always say to me can you come and sit in with me for an hour and I would shoot the breeze with him and that was it was almost like um push-ups for radio because he's <laughs> so sharp so icy so dry <laughs> And it taught me a great deal about the, the, the nature of call and response in radio. Um, but yeah, ultimately, Sammy Jacobs, yeah, that this is going back, what, 20, 20 years? Longer, maybe. Yeah. At the outset of um, XFM launching, um, we did five years of trial broadcasting. So we would have a license that would allow us to pretty much just broadcast to Camden, for one month in a year. But at that point in our lives, we literally felt like it was the revolution because there was almost nothing on the radio that was perceived as alternative in any way beyond Peel, mm. other than maybe Janice, you know, mm. Janice Long on Radio 1. That was about it. Yeah. And we thought, we are changing the world with XFM. And we committed to that network with all of our hearts for five years and gave it absolutely everything that we got um, and, and it was still the most beautiful day for me I think certainly one of the most beautiful days of my life when they won a licence for the first time you know but you were involved at the very start of XFM weren't you? No only when it legitimised I wasn't I, I was um, um, well as you know I was, I was BBC local radio and then Radio 1 um, and, uh, and I got involved in XFM it was actually 16 years ago it, mm. this, it was I think this week 16 years ago Wow. Um, so and it had just been it had been I think year, a year previously it had been bought by Capital Radio and so and there was um, and actually Carl who's now the editor of DJ Mag organised uh, who was comes from an indie sort of indie background organised the and this is before the days of the internet mm. um, organised a uh, a uh, uh, everyone was outside with signs all protesting um, at the, wherever it was in Charlotte Street but yeah, no, so I yeah I basically got stuck in once it um once it changed to capital, came up with the idea for the remix. Mm. So um so well I guess we've 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 covered we've we've covered journalism and 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 so you're now you're now in radio, and um when did when did you switch from because you were a total rock chick I mean as <laughs> like as as we have discussed like that's what you were you know you you came from a from a sort of metal background and you your you cut your teeth in sound you know everything was very rock with you and then a switch happened and suddenly you discovered dance music you discovered electronic music so what was the who was the person or I mean I know f for me it's, oh, it was very obvious Goldie and, and, and Liam Howlett that, that were my sort of entry points into dance music so what was it for you what what changed the game for you it was the Hacienda of um, course we used to I mean we were living in London at that point um, and we used to pile up the motorway every single weekend you know 200 miles up the M6 um, 
probably eight of us in one car, <laughs> um, rent one hotel room at the Britannia, which is like this absolutely notorious shithole. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. I used to stay yeah. at the Britannia, funnily enough, when I used to go up to the Hacienda. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Happy Mondays and Nathan McGough were friends of mine. And um, actually, I wrote the first ever Happy Mondays cover story for Sounds. That was the last piece that I wrote for the cover of Sounds. And... Um, I, I stepped across the threshold of the Hacienda and my life changed forever, completely, in that moment. And I, I remember some of the most glorious days of my life in that club, not really understanding what was happening at all. I mean, I don't think you ever do, do you, when you're inside the moment? You only you can only really figure it out in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but so many of those clubs have been absolutely pivotal in my life, Um Goldie's Club Metalheads. Yes. On Hoxton Square. Yeah, the Blue Note. Yeah. That's that's where the name The Breeze Block comes from, my Radio 1 show name, the, the kind of classic electronic show that I used to hold um, at Radio 1. It, it comes from standing in a summer breeze, queuing around the block outside Metalheads. And I just remember the thrill of being in that queue, the excitement of being in that queue. And again, we spool all the way back to that field where I met all those kids who were into Motorhead for the first time. All those kids who are into jungle and drum and bass, you know, that you'd end up talking to in this queue. And these are, I don't know, days before I would dare to ask for, to be on a guest list at a place like that because I, I was very much on the periphery of that culture. And I wanted to go and experience it just as a punter as well. You know, I wanted to stand in the queue and do what everybody else did. But I also found I had some of the best conversations of my life in that queue, standing there with all these people just <laughs> buzzing, thinking like, oh my God, are we going to get in tonight? You know? And because um, obviously by the time you did get inside, the, uh, you were just completely absorbed within within the music. And actually the conversation was m much more sporadic. You would just be yelling a few words into people's ears. But actually outside in that queue is where those where, where those real moments of connection took place. And um, yeah, beyond that, I think um, places like DMZ and Forward in London, which were the, the great dubstep meccas in the very, very early days. And also... Uh, Low End Theory out in in Los Angeles on the west coast of America, which is still my favourite club to play in America, which takes place in like this crazy little prohibition bar um, out in Lincoln Heights, which is pretty much the ghetto. Um, and it goes down every Wednesday night, hosted by the Gaslamp Killer and Daddy Kev. Um, oh, yeah. And I, every single time I cross that threshold, I know that I'm going to hear music that I've never heard before in my entire life. And it's the, the kind of club of choice, like Tom York will always play at Low End Theory if he passes through town, specifically for that reason, I think the same reason as me, that he knows that whoever else it is that they're going to book will bring in music that you've never heard before, yeah. you know. And I don't know, there's something about those places, isn't there as well? There's something about, again, the notion that you attract kindred spirits into a place that they call home. And there's a family of people that are drawn together Um into these environments that are so precious and, and they always have been throughout my entire life, you know, as the decades roll on, you're always looking for the next, the next little home, you know, mm. and it does feel like home when you, when you're part of that community, it's really exciting, you know. You know, I've, I've been smiling while you've been talking because I was, when you talked about like being in the queue and the expectation, it reminded me of myself. I was, when I was at uh, uni in London and uh, Delirium uh, was on at the Astoria and it was like the hottest night in, in London and, you know, massively oversubscribed, so enormous queues, very hip. 
event and com- what seem seemingly completely arbitrary on the door, sort of like yes, yes, no, 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 yes, no yeah. type thing. They, you know, I was really keen to like you. I just wanted to step through the threshold and experience it. And I remember queuing up, and so I queued up, queued up, queued up, got all the way to the front, and the guy at the bounce or whoever the door picker was was like, no, no. And I was so keen to get in, I just rejoined the end of the queue, (laughs) queued up again, and then the next time it's like, yeah, okay, like that, proving how completely arbitrary it was. But that that (laughs) idea that I'd queue up and then get turned away and then and go re-queue <laughs> and then get in on my second second, second, second time, time round yes but it just reminded me like you of you know you wanted to you know how you how you were desperate to to step across the, the threshold of mm. those places and be part of it you know yeah it's really interesting really actually there was, um, there was a woman on the door at the Hacienda Fiona Allen who was in Smack the Pony actually years later many years later and we were absolutely terrified of her and I remember feeling exactly the same way thinking like oh god we've queued all this time yeah please god let her let us in you mm. know um Mm. And we we knew that we'd be okay if we were with Nathan McGough, who was Happy Monday's manager. But beyond that, almost anything could happen, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting, actually, where I live now. I live in uh, Altrincham, which is just outside of Manchester. And there's a fantastic local market that I go to there. And the people who sell the flowers, um, one of the girls, Julie, used to work at the Hacienda all the time. So we're constantly kind of reminiscing about those glory days. And... um, (laughs) She went to Wigan Pier as well as a girl, which I, I never experienced. So I'm always asking her to tell me the stories of what Wigan Pier was like, you know. And she told me this amazing story about um, they had to get a bus um, across to Wigan to go to these club nights. And, and the bus didn't return to Manchester until the very early hours of, of the following morning. So they used to pack sandwiches, cheese sandwiches, and they used to go and sit in the local swimming pool, which was open very early to do an, an an, an elderly, an octogenarian swimming class, and they used to sit and watch these people swimming up and down and eat their cheese sandwiches, waiting. It was for the like bus. The, the killing the time between seven a.m. and eight fifteen, or, exactly, or whatever when it was. The bus left, and I thought that's almost like a scene out of Twin Peaks. I can just imagine it playing out. All these kids after they've been dancing to Northern Soul all night, sitting there in this swimming bath, <laughs> watching these old people going up and down, munching their cheese sandwiches. Just the most bizarre image. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Uh, you, know, you reminded me there's, there's one thing that we are ha- going to have to talk about um, purely selfishly um, before we get into the incredible sort of richness of the, the tapestry of new music that you that you so brilliantly represent, Marianne. But you've reminded me with, with one word, and that word was breeze block, and how brilliant. It, so now I, I I didn't know that that's why you chose that word, and I I remember you know working at Radio One and and listening to Pete Tong's show and listening to go, and he, he would sort of. Um, in a piss-takingly, in a in a charming sort of way, would refer to um, John Carter and Mark Jones and all of that lot as a purveyors of those breeze block beats. He would talk about those breeze block beats. He'd talk about Wall of Sound Night and those breeze block beats. And and of course, you were the the mascot for Big Beat, weren't you? I mean, like you like that when when that show when when you connect when you landed at Radio One and and they gave you that show and you called it that. Obviously, dubstep hadn't happened, and and there was a, there there was a, one in the jungle was happening. So you know, kind of drum and bass, or what became drum and bass was was sort of being covered off there with MC Debt and GQ and Goldie and all of those guys. But and and you, the main kind of 
spine of your show was what we used to call Big Beat. And that is was one of probably my favourite music genre you know in that time i i i think back You're on still it with pretty such, keen, aren't you i love i love big, big yeah you know like i got a gig <laughs> i got a gig at, at bath moles just like in february and they asked me to come and play an old big beat set because it was just before the students came back and so they were trying to appeal to those kind of like 35 to 50 year olds to come into a, a to, to bath moles that legendary venue and god it was so fun and i just i just think back on that on those days with such huge um just huge smiles but and, and i i watched it from the outside you know i wasn't like i didn't know mark jones then i mean he's a friend now but i, I like i didn't know mark jones when he took drugs <laughs> like i only knew him when he was clean but you you were in there like you were you were interacting with all these people yeah, and no championing <laughs> oh, no no it wasn't it wasn't a drugs related question but it was more a music and a cultural thing that that, that that's let, let, you know lest we forget you know you were you were right in there in, in the most kind of fun genre that that existed in dance music at that time and that very much embodied you you know you and me in a sense it was like it was dance music made by people who weren't purist about it and who didn't come from a strictly 88 to 91 getting their trainers Mm. dirty at raves place that nick comes from (laughs) it was like you know we came at dance music you know we came at it from a completely different a place and 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 I think our first convergence. Well, I mean, personally, you and I's first convergence was at that t- as, uh, was at that time. But musically, culturally, you know, we we had that, the Motorhead similarity, but we never met. And then we had this big beat thing. That was our genre, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? How quickly dance music moves. Always, <laughs> I think. And at that point, it was just a really fresh, emerging sound. And I, I remember hearing. Take California by Propellerheads mm. for the first time and just thinking that blew me away completely, yeah. blew me away. And that for me still epitomises what I loved about that sound. It, it was it was very minimal and stripped down and very chic and it moved beautifully. Um, but I think for us as well, it was a, a, it was a question of what Tongi was playing was very tired and it felt like it was just an endless continuous loop for me that yeah. it, it didn't inspire me or excite me in any way and then I don't know there, there was a sort of element of, of real punk energy that came with that whole scene as well wasn't there really um, as you say a lot of outrageous behaviour and uh, yeah. a lot of attitude a lot of big characters um, a lot of great personality a lot of fascinating stories that came with that whole kind of collective of artists but that moved really quickly for me that was only probably it was like a mad summer, I think, wasn't it? Pretty much. Yeah, a couple. Yeah, a couple. There was sort of yeah, because like you, you always get in at the beginning, and then when it's pop, you're, you're 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 somewhere else. When then it, when when you know when ooh la la by the wise guys happened, you'd moved on. Yeah, I was long gone at that point. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, what a lovely genre. I I I talked to um uh, probably mutual friend Alex Metric yesterday, and he says he's he's bringing he's confident he's going to bring it back. He's working <laughs> he's working with one of the, with Jamie from the Claxons, I think, and he's they're gonna, they, they're doing something to together so yeah very exciting so um gosh we better play some music we could just we could chat to you uh we could just do this uh, all day but um so you the, the, the next record that you've chosen i know is is by pinch it is so yeah. um so we've now we've now moved forward in time um yeah um if you were to ask me which i'm sure you probably would um 
how did you first encounter dubstep which is something mm. that again i loved in its in its very early days um i fell out of love with um but i i think the first tune that i ever heard half step tune um that that completely literally changed my life was a tune called um war dub that that pinch made in collaboration with another artist called dotty and i I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And uh, I remember calling him and I, I was on a bus in the rain and it was a really dirty black day. You know, the clouds were hanging really low in the sky. I was going through King's Cross and, yeah, the rain was hammering down on the sides of the bus and I'd got a telephone number for him. So I rang him and I said, this tune is absolutely mind-blowing. What is it? I don't even... I don't have a, a name for a genre or anything. What is this music? And he said, well, it's called dubstep. And he said, if you if you really want to know about this music, you have to find a guy called Mala and you have to go to a place called DMZ. And of course, the rest is history. You know, that's exactly what I did. And, and it became a huge passion for me for s- several years. Was um, that a club in Croydon? It's a, it was a club that took place at, um, at the church in Brixton, actually. That was in Brixton. Third base, oh, yeah. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And, um, but it was, it was Pinch's first solo tune. This is his first ever release on Tectonic, I think. Oh, not his second release on Tectonic, but his first solo piece that still resonates with me after all of these years. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favourite pieces of music of all time. And again, you can hear the connection back to Subterraneans, the, the Bowie piece that we played earlier. I was about to say that, You can yeah. hear the grace and the space um, and, and textually how those two are connected when you, when you hear this tune. But yeah, it's his, it's his first ever solo piece. It's beautiful. Trailblazers, Marianne Hobbs. Koali by Pinch. Wow. So, um, yeah, God, that. So, talk about a get, you know, a game change, a game changer for you. You suddenly were in this. You were. You must have found yourself in this a- alien world, really, because uh, that that mu- and that music. It was so. Um, it was so interesting because a, a, a lot of it was made by by people who, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, didn't really know what they were doing very much. They they would they were kind of pushed. They were envelope pushing. It wasn't like you know test pilots who are you know sort of consummate professionals, the Sam Shepard and the right stuff. It was not that at all. It was more. I think it was much more. You know, they were making music. I, I mean, right at the beginning, like with with um, games consoles and stuff like that. It was very bleepy like you say half beat and it was it was so stoner like i like i, I always thought this is and, and that you know the, these are stone kids stone kids from croydon but of course <laughs> you came you know you don't even smoke like you're not you're not a part of it on that level so um i guess like you you must have discovered it just because pinch had sent you this tune and 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 then sort of what was the story how you know tell us a bit more about that it's always interesting to find out about uh, something that 
explodes from somebody that was right at the heart of that explosion. It was really interesting because you're absolutely right. Pinch sent me that one first tune and behind that tune, another pathway opened up for me. And I think I probably responded to dubstep in the same way that Peel responded to punk in that it changed the the entire fabric of my programme overnight, like literally. And um, it was a really fascinating time. Um, what you had was a, a very tiny family of producers and artists actually making this sound. And beyond the sub and the space in the sound, um, the notion was always that each producer had to come with something original, some sort of original aesthetic that was their own. And... Um, it's funny, actually, there's a photograph somewhere of all of the people in the dubstep scene <laughs> in, I don't know, the early days, uh, around about 15 years ago. And there's, there's literally maybe 20 people in that photograph, including Burial. Um, mm. But I remember watching Screenplay for the very first time at a club called Ford, which used to take place at Plastic People, which was very much a mecca for dubstep. And... Um, there were literally three people in the room at that point, and that was um, Scream's girlfriend, Hatcher, who was another kind of pioneering dubstep DJ, and myself. No, four, the barman as well, and that was it. <laughs> and, and it was literally one of the most incredible sets that I've seen of all time, and he played to a pitch-black empty room. But slowly over the course of the next couple of years, that room filled up, and I remember a bi-weekly night at Forward um, where... Once again, there was that incredible sense of family coming together. And I used to go there alone, always on my own. And um, it got to a point at which I knew every single person in the room. And every single person kind of played a role within that scene to to nurture and to cherish and to platform it. And um, out of these incredibly tiny, beautiful little seeds, um, something really, really magical happened, you know. Um, I remember... I put a program together called Dubstep Wars, which you probably know, which mm. is, is is kind of considered the global tipping point for the sound. And what point was that chronologically that when that show came out? That was um, just after DMZ's first birthday party. So they had had a birthday party in Brixton. Wh- um, which year are we in? So we're in two thousand and six, and and this was it was a really inter- interesting time in terms of what what was happening in the digital environment as well, because MySpace had just started to happen in a big way. Message boards were emerging at that point and there used to be a little board called Dubstep Forum, which I think had 200 members. Mm -hmm. And I remember the night that we threw down Dubstep Wars, it was absolutely magical. And we kind of, we had a sense that we'd done something that was really incredible on the radio, but we didn't realise that the reach would be so gigantic. And I remember the following morning, Distance, who was one of the DJs who played, just put a little post up at the dubstep forum, as I, I say, 200 that. members. And within five hours, it had had 20,000 hits. And in those days, that was absolutely monumental, yeah. you know. And it seemed to be, certainly in my life, that the, the first example of something going viral and something, a message about a new sound travelling right around the world because those those lines of communication in in quite a primitive form were suddenly open and available online and mm, uh, that is interesting yeah. yeah it was remarkable I suppose that the, some of the moments that I remember most distinctly um, in fact I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the 
the hugest moment for me was was bringing dubstep to sonar for the very first time to sonar festival oh, in yeah. spain and um i was invited to curate my first showcase there i did eight in the end um and that was in 2007 and they were kind of interested in the notion of what dubstep was in the uk but they they didn't have the confidence really to book it for themselves they 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 needed somebody to really contextualize it and to present it for them and at that point um I guess DMZ's first birthday party was was the biggest event Dubstep had ever seen. 800 people turned up and it, there was a kind of roadblock outside the church in Brixton and it was really exciting. But um, I remember arriving at Sonar and Sonar is this enormous kind of wide open space. It's, it, it, it looks like a series of aircraft hangars. That's the shape of the site. It's outdoor in Spain. It's very much glass and steel and concrete, very urban, very huge. And... Um, I remember turning up there for the sound check and they just got walls and banks and banks and banks and banks of subs and we, we walked out onto this massive stage and Scream turned around to me and he said, oh my God, are you sure about this? This looks like the sort of stage, stage that like Faithless would play. And I said, well, look, we've sp- I've spent, you know, Six months laying the turf with, 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 with the European audience. They know that we're coming. Let's just... Let's just show up and play and see what happens. But I remember us kind of gazing out at this gigantic area that holds eight and a half thousand people. But I took um, Code Nine and the Space Ape, uh, Oris J, Scream, Mala came with us and myself. Um, and that night it felt like we changed the world forever. I, I remember Scream's headline set. There were eight and a half thousand people going absolutely crazy these goosebumps i'm getting just listening to this <laughs> i know but there was i don't know there was there, there was that incredible sense of not really knowing what would happen and i remember i opened the night at at midnight and uh about 10 or 15 minutes into my set just these rivers of bodies started to flow into the arena. And I remember Code 9 running up to me and shaking me by the shoulders, going like, oh my God, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And it's one of the wildest yeah. nights that I've ever had on earth. Jamie Collum was there, interestingly. And wow. uh, Malice took him out dancing right down the front. Um, <laughs> but I think it was at that moment that all of us realised this isn't just a South London thing. This sound has got massive international potential. And we woke up the following morning and every headline across every European paper was basically dubstep take sonar. And I remember sitting for breakfast with Scream and he was, he was 21 at that point and he said, that was the greatest night of my life on earth. Literally the greatest night. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's amazing when those moments happen, you know, and you can never really predict them. You don't know. I mean, we could have fallen flat on our faces, um, but I'm always the one who will say, come on, let's try it. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. You know, let's, mm. um, let's charge at it. I mean, what's the worst that, that can possibly happen? What, what might go wrong? The answer is people don't get it. But I think ordinarily, you, you know when people are ready. If, if we'd have come a year before, it would have been too soon, you know. Mm. But I think the message had been so successfully propagated. The appetite for an event like that was just enormous at that point. You know, it's, uh, it's often about timing, isn't it? And it's about dropping the right event in the right moment. So what, where, do, where do you want to go? What do you think, um, in terms of our conversation, would be the, the, the best thing to play out of those guys now? I think I want to... 
I want to demonstrate my commitment to the new breed. So yeah. let's play Koji Radical. This is a tune called Kwame Nkrumah. And um, what can I tell you about uh-huh. Koji? Yeah, tell us. Yeah, please, yeah, tell, tell us more. Yeah. So he's 23 years old, completely unsigned. He's the most exciting young artist that I've come across in 2016. Um, uh, he has just released entirely independently uh, a 10 track EP called 23 Winters which made number 3 on the iTunes hip hop chart with no PR no plugging no advertising no nothing just people hearing it on the radio and absolutely loving it um, I brought him to the Six Music Festival and he performed alongside Saul Williams blew Saul Williams' mind Saul Williams then invited him up on stage just a couple of weeks ago in London to guest with him and uh, where's Koji from? He's from Hackney, East London. And uh, this is one of the tunes from the EP that you're about to hear. And it's called Kwame Nkrumah. And it was um, a piece inspired by his father who told him about Kwame's history. And uh, he always says to me, it's my father that gives me my sense of determination and my will to continue. And one of the best posts that I've seen all year on Twitter was a post that Koji put up of his dad listening to this record for the first time with headphones on and head bowed, hands just praying like so. And uh, I think it was, God, it was just such a profound image. And I knew in that moment that he was just waiting for his father's approval. He was waiting for his father to say, you've done well. And he got it. Trailblazers, Marianne Hobbs. I pray for peace, pray for patience. Hope they can hear my frustrations. I wear my fear like a fragrance. You want the fault of my cadence. I cry the tears of a nation. They think they're Donnie Montana. I think I'm Kwame and Kuma. I think I'm Kwame and Kuma. You will not give me my freedom. I cry the tears of a nation. They think they're Donnie Montana. I think I'm Kwame and Kuma. Wow. So, um, I mean, that's that's incredible. Koji uh, that, Radical, seek him out. He's well, incredible. There you go. Poet, artist, music maker. Um, I don't know. I'm saying possibly the UK's answer to Kendrick Lamar. Mm. So, um, yeah. Thank you. And, thank yeah, you thanks. Thank you so one. much. And that and that's and it's a really interesting record because and it really embodies you because it's kind of got a foot in several different camps there. And and uh, we we haven't even touched on grime, but that we kind of did there because that sort of you say it's in the hip hop charts, and and I guess you you can look at that as a hip hop record, but it's so much more sort of future hip hop than that, isn't it? Poet, a, really? So yeah. you know, it sounds like it, it's it, it is it's it's yes, it's yes to hip hop, yes to grime, yes to sort of alternative electronic music, and that sort of blue daisy. Um, Dahlia Black kind of vibe, you know, and and that's that's so you um, amazing, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal record. Um, so so wow, we've oh, I, I can't believe we, we're going to have to do a, a, a Marianne Hobbs part two. I feel because <laughs> you know uh, to, we've to, run to, out of time. Yeah, yeah, we, we've come to, to run out. We've run out of time, and so um, what we'll have to do is is put um, Kendrick and um, and Nils and and the amazing Hacks and Cloak. We'll, we'll get them attached to this in in some way, um, but at least we've um, we've doffed our caps. Um, so we we come to the point where we ask you the same question that we ask all of our trailblazers, which is that if aliens land, which they inevitably will do, and they go, um, look, we've we, we've come here to to make an intergalactic superhighway through this part of the galaxy, and we we 
tossing up whether to blow up you or, or the moon, um, you know, to make way for this thing. And um, give us give us one good reason why we shouldn't destroy this planet. Um, and if you gave them one piece of music to save the planet, what would it be? No contest, Eddie. Um, I was the first person ever to play this man's demos on the radio. And uh, God, it just makes my heart sing to see his star in the ascendant um, in the way that it is. So I'm going to go for a brand new piece of music from James Blake. Um, this is absolutely exquisite. It's called Modern Soul. Trailblazers. Marianne Hobbs. Originals Trailblazers Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to Marianne Hobbs for joining us. Goldie, next time on Trailblazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. <laughs>